Chapter 8, Part 2 Muddling Through August to October 2003 Of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1 By U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable Chapter 8, Part 2 Muddling Through August to October 2003 CJTF-7 and the CPA, A Troubled Quest for Stability, page 207. From Caretaker Command to Four-Star Headquarters. When Fifth Corps replaced the Coalition Forces Land Component Command, or CFLCC, as the CJTF-7 in June 2003, Rumsfeld and Franks both believed that the smaller Corps headquarters would be a sufficient caretaker command that could manage redeployment operations and a transition to Iraqi sovereignty. Abizade's July announcement that units on the ground would remain in-country for 12 months effectively nullified those expectations. As the security situation deteriorated, it became clear that the coalition presence would be required beyond March 2004 to ensure the transition to a capable Iraqi authority and security forces. On November 6, 2003, Rumsfeld announced that the nearly 100,000 U.S. troops on the ground in Iraq would be succeeded by a second rotation of approximately 70,000 to 75,000 troops, including 20,000 Marines. The Department of Defense, or DOD, later revealed that the second rotation would consist of a considerable number of Reserve and National Guard troops across all the services. From an early stage, both Abizade and Sanchez concluded that the demands placed on CJTF-7 were too heavy for an operational headquarters. The military tasks involved in supporting the CPA and standing up a functioning Iraqi government with capable security forces would require a fully staffed joint and international strategic headquarters commanded by a four-star general, they judged. Raising the profile of CJTF-7 to a four-star command would also preclude Bremer's wish to subordinate CJTF-7 to the CPA, an idea that Abizade and his advisors opposed in the interests of protecting CJTF-7 and its small staff from being burdened with CENTCOM-level requirements and becoming a competitor organization for theater resources. In August, the two commanders, Abizade and Sanchez, agreed to propose the establishment of two new headquarters in Iraq a Strategic Coalition Forces Command Iraq, or CFCI, headquarters responsible for theater command and control, nation-building, and oversight of the strategic campaign plan, and an operational-level Multinational Corps Iraq, or MNCI, focused on the operational tactical fight. As for how to build those two commands out of the existing CJTF-7 manning and staffing, Sanchez proposed that the U.S. Third Corps based in Fort Hood, Texas, serve as the foundation for the new MNCI headquarters, and that the CFLCC and Third Army headquarters, then in Kuwait, provide the basis for the CFCI. Abizade discussed these proposals with CFLCC and Third Army Commander Lieutenant General David D. McKiernan, who would present the recommendations for both headquarters to the Secretary of Defense and the Joint Chiefs months later, in December 2003. The Troop Number Debate as the scope of the mission in Iraq expanded in the late summer and fall of 2003, Sanchez and CJTF-7 sought CENTCOM and DOD approval for a troop increase to handle the growing military tasks in Iraq. One of the most significant resource limitations Rumsfeld imposed on the strategy for Iraq was in the number of troops, which became a politically charged topic in the summer of 2003. 
Even though CJTF-7 had requested additional forces for Iraq, and the army had recommended increasing its total end strength to meet the demands of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, Rumsfeld was reluctant to commit additional forces to Iraq and disagreed with army leaders that the service's end strength was inadequate for the existing U.S. military commitments. The institutional army, too, wanted forces returned home quickly to reset and prepare for army transformation, appoint U.S. Army Forces Command, or FORSCOM, Commander General Larry R. Ellis made in response to General Sanchez's requests for more forces. Instead, on September 16th, Rumsfeld directed that the force in Iraq be cut from its existing 125,000 to under 100,000 by March 2004, essentially reducing the force by a division's worth of soldiers. The number of Allied troops would also eventually have to be reduced from 35,000 to fewer than 25,000 by March. Rumsfeld's insistence on reduced troop numbers for Iraq came at a time when the Reserve and National Guard personnel who had been mobilized since 9-11 were approaching their two-year statutory mobilization limits, meaning that the Army was about to face critical shortages in intelligence, military police, civil affairs, psychological operations, and engineer personnel, many of which came from the Reserve components. By the end of October 2003, Army leaders considered reimposing stop-loss, a policy that blocked soldiers from leaving active service, for the active component and using individual-ready reserve soldiers, reservists not assigned to any unit who often had not performed military duties for years, to generate augmentees to man the joint headquarters in Iraq. Army leaders were also concerned about the unpreparedness for combat of reserve component units in light of the 507th Maintenance Company ambush in Nasiriyah during the invasion. They estimated that any mobilized reserve units would require three to six months of preparation before entering the theater, so that reserve units on a 12-month mobilization would likely only be able to serve in Iraq for a total of six months. Quote, We can barely resource CENTCOM requirements under current conditions, and our nation is unprepared for global contingencies, wrote Abizade's advisors on October 1st. Many describe the current situation as overcommitment, but we are really under-resourced. We are committed in areas vital to U.S. national interests, end quote. Because the public debates about these issues occurred simultaneously, many involved in them conflated the request for more troops in Iraq with the discussions about increasing the total army end strength, and Abizaid found himself in the middle of arguments about whether his recommended force commitments would, quote, break the army, end quote. Abizaid's advisors had acknowledged this difficult predicament in a memorandum on August 27th, quote, it is a strange situation when Senator Kay Bailey Hutchison, a Republican from Texas, is calling for an increase in army end strength, and the Secretary of Defense, whose options are limited by a shortage in land power, is resisting that call. The administration is confusing the troops in Iraq issue with the debate over force structure and army end strength. It is our sensing that the DOD is using you, i.e., General Abizade says we do not need more troops, to escape from confronting the grand strategic dilemma it faces due to a shortage of land power. The train wreck in army readiness has already happened. We have simply not yet felt the full effects. End quote. An Army of Contractors Rumsfeld's cap on troop numbers for Iraq had the unintended consequence of bringing more contractors into the theater of operations to compensate for shortfalls in military capacity, greatly expanding the 1990s phenomenon of contracting out traditional military functions. American units in Iraq relied on civilian contractors to run military systems, assist with reconstruction, and provide logistical support. 
The greater numbers of contractors on the battlefield brought important benefits but also created some significant drawbacks. On the one hand, contractors provided life support that military systems alone could not sustain and assisted with missions too large for the overly taxed coalition soldiers to handle, such as the destruction of Iraq's vast ammunition caches. On the other hand, as contracts flowed into Iraq, CPA and CJTF-7 had difficulty overseeing the influx. At CJTF-7, only 24 personnel were available to manage contracts for all of Iraq, a lack of sufficient oversight that reduced the contractor's overall effectiveness. For example, Sanchez and his U.S. division commanders complained to Abizade that the Bechtel Company, which worked reconstruction-related projects for the coalition, was, quote, wasting time and money on assessments and working on the wrong priorities, such as schools instead of electricity, end quote, and that reconstruction contracts were, quote, weakly written, end quote, with no one to ensure their contractual mandates were fulfilled. Other contracts were not appropriately resourced, requiring commanders to redirect scarce troops to support the contracts. The Venel contract to provide trainers for the new Iraqi army, for instance, lacked provisions for Venel to transport and secure its contractors. As a result, CJTF-7 divisions had to transport and secure the contractors. The Governance Support Teams In August 2003, CPA followed up the previous month's establishment of the Iraqi Governing Council in Baghdad by establishing small teams of governance capacity advisors for each of Iraq's 18 provinces. The purpose of these teams was to, quote, bridge the gap between national government and the multitude of local governments within Iraq, end quote, and to work with the U.S. Agency for International Development and coalition military units to execute CPA directives in each of the provinces. Each team was led by a CPA government coordinator and was meant to have up to five governance specialists from the Department of State or a similar organization capable of governance capacity building. Most teams, however, consisted of only one or two personnel at best, observed Emma Skye, the governance coordinator for Kirkuk, whose colleagues in other provinces included, among others, the Kurdish-American diplomat Haro Mustafa in Nineveh, the British writer Rory Stewart in Amara, British official Mark Etherington in Kut, and American diplomats Michael Gfoler and Henry Ensher in Hilla and Duwania, respectively. To support the governance teams, CJTF-7 directed the divisions to establish governance support teams to act as the military arm of each governance team and ensure that CPA representatives and CJTF-7 units integrated their operations. Consisting of about 14 soldiers from the Civil Affairs Branch and other combat support specialties, the governance support teams answered to the division commanders and were supposed to provide security, communications, and life support for CPA governance teams until those teams became self-sustaining. Most of the divisions housed the governance teams and governance support teams in their Civil Military Operations Centers, or CMOC, and took instructions to support the governance support team program seriously. Abizade also saw the concept as an opportunity to redeploy the overworked civil affairs units in the short term so that they could refit for future operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. The governorate teams, however, were often poorly manned by CPA representatives who rotated every 90 days, making it difficult for the coalition divisions to develop long-term relationships or strategies with them. Fortunately, the governorate teams were not the division's sole interface with local governments. Most division commanders interfaced directly with Iraqi provincial leadership through their established CMOCs or similar bodies to maintain active coalition involvement in building governance capacity. 
In Baghdad, for example, the 1st Armored Division helped organize neighborhood advisory councils consisting of neighborhood leaders or mukhtars to identify the most urgent reconstruction and economic needs. One operation that leveraged cooperation between the governorate teams and the divisions was the exchange of the Iraqi dinar, the value of which had fluctuated wildly since the invasion because of counterfeited bills and the introduction of the U.S. dollar to local markets. The old Iraqi dinars also came only in two denominations, 250 and 10,000, and had Saddam's face on the front. CPA economic analysts worried that absent a currency exchange, the dinar and Iraq's economy would collapse. Working with the CPA and the CJTF-7 division commanders, Wojtykowski developed a plan to collect the old dinars and replace them with the new bills, an operation that CJTF-7 intended to use as a rehearsal for introducing and collecting ballots at polling stations during Iraq's eventual national elections. On October 15th, Helicopters of the new currency began arriving in the provinces, and, along with the governorate teams, the divisions and some of the budding Iraqi security forces and local governance began overseeing the distribution of the country's new post-Saddam dinar. Difficulties with Tribal Outreach Frustrated by the rising Sunni resistance to the coalition, some senior CJTF-7 officers proposed outreach to Iraq's Sunni tribes as a means of blunting the growing insurgency, believing that absent opportunities to contribute constructively in post-Saddam Iraq, Sunni tribal leaders would pursue other options, including to work with anti-coalition resistance organizations and criminal groups to safeguard the prosperity and security of their tribes. The joint staff, too, encouraged the CPA to consider engaging those tribes that appeared willing to cooperate with the coalition, a proposal on which Bremer was reluctant to act. The CPA's policy stance toward the tribes made outreach difficult. Throughout the summer of 2003, Bremer and one of his senior assistants, Megan O'Sullivan, had viewed Iraq's tribes as an artifact of the past and were reluctant to incorporate tribal leaders into even advisory roles. In October, Bremer withdrew coalition support for a conference of southern Shia tribes arranged by Gafoler, the regional coordinator for south-central Iraq, and endorsed by Iraq's Shia and the coalition at a time when Muqtada Sadr's militia was becoming a strategic problem. Despite CPA's stance, in most areas, tribal outreach was already happening at the tactical level as a matter of course. By late summer 2003, most of CJTF-7's divisions had developed connections to important local sheikhs and religious leaders in order to facilitate reconstruction, economic development, and governance. Recognizing the value in these relationships, CJTF-7 attempted to operationalize them at the core level. On July 31, 2003, CJTF-7 notified the divisions that it intended to develop a comprehensive list of influential tribal leaders across Iraq that any unit could use to leverage in their stability operations, and also requested that divisions identify the tribal leaders in their areas who merit an engagement at the national level. As part of its effort to develop a countrywide engagement plan, CJTF-7 collected information on tribes that was useful in securing critical infrastructure. The challenge for the divisions was in identifying the correct leaders and tribes. While coalition commanders acknowledged the importance of working with tribal leaders, they were often baffled by the complexity of Iraq's tribal dynamics. Quote, Life in the Arabian Peninsula is an intricate tapestry, Dempsey commented, and we have a very difficult time understanding that. End quote. 
Dempsey's troops complained that Iraqi tribal leaders constantly lied to them, not understanding that those leaders were often caught between their cultural requirement to protect and serve their tribes and what might be best for the country as a whole. Nevertheless, these limited tribal engagement efforts eventually persuaded Bremer that the CPA should have some medium through which to address the mounting tribal grievances and encourage more Sunnis to join the political process instead of the resistance. In October, the CPA created the Office of Provincial Outreach, led by British diplomat David Richmond and State Department official Ronald L. Schlicker, to coordinate Sunni tribal outreach. However, limited in its authorities to listening to grievances and assessing reparations for damages caused by coalition operations, the new office was insufficient for initiating tribal engagements that could reverse the trend toward political conflict and insurgency. Setbacks for the internationalization effort As the CPA and CJTF-7 were branching into local governance in fall 2003, CENTCOM continued pursuing its dual main efforts of putting an Iraqi face on the campaign and internationalizing the U.S.-led military and reconstruction missions, matters that became increasingly difficult from the late summer onward. At the CENTCOM level, internationalization translated into engagements with regional and international players to donate more financial, humanitarian, and military resources to Iraq reconstruction. It also meant building capacity within the multinational forces already operating as part of Multinational Division South Central, or MNDCS, in the mid-Euphrates region, Multinational Division Southeast, or MNDSE, in southern Iraq, and the small South Korean Army force in Kurdistan known as Multinational Division Northeast, or MNDNE. With support from CENTCOM, the State Department asked other countries in the Middle East to contribute military and reconstruction resources to Iraq, and Bremer convinced the State Department and the Iraqi Governing Council to send Iraqi representatives to a donor conference in Madrid, Spain on September 23rd to ask for debt relief, donations, and other resources. In southern Iraq, CPA Representative Sir Hilary Sinat successfully obtained 22 additional country donor contributions for the region by explaining, quote, how much more pleasant it would be if their staff worked in the south rather than the dangerous Sunni triangle, end quote. Despite these accomplishments and some success obtaining international debt relief for Iraq, internationalization on the whole was unsuccessful. Many Iraqis were unenthusiastic about contributions from Arab countries and Turkey because they viewed the provision of aid from neighboring countries as a slight to Iraqi national pride. Coalition Military Assistance Training Team Commander Major General Paul D. Eaton noted, for example, that the Iraqi police trainees he sent to the Jordan International Police Training Center had difficulty adjusting to being trained in a neighbor state that Iraqis had long considered a weak satellite of Iraq. The Iraqi Governing Council, meanwhile, judged that a Turkish military presence in northern Iraq would upset the delicate balance between Kurds and Arabs in the region. It was Zarqawi's activities, however, that truly derailed international participation and buy-in for rebuilding Iraq. On September 22nd, Zarqawi's organization bombed the remains of the headquarters of the UN Assistance Mission for Iraq, or UNAMI, in Baghdad they had destroyed the previous month. Although the attack caused far less physical damage than the August 19th truck bomb, it proved to be a significant setback to CENTCOM's internationalization campaign when UN Secretary General Kofi Annan announced further reductions in UNAMI personnel. The attack also heralded a conscious shift in UN perception of what its role should be in Iraq. 
Shortly after Ansar al-Islam detonated a car bomb outside the Turkish embassy in Baghdad on October 14th, the UN Security Council passed Resolution 1511, authorizing the multinational force to continue operating in lieu of the UN-led mission in Iraq and requiring it to report on the progress being made. Slow start for the Iraqi security forces. After Zarqawi's activities imperiled internationalization efforts, the coalition moved its energies into the other priority Abizade's advisors had predicted was necessary, Iraqization. A key component of Iraqization was the building of independent Iraqi security forces. Abizade intended for these forces to serve as a buffer between the coalition military and the Iraqi populace and, in so doing, to downplay the coalition's role as an occupying force and mitigate the operational risk posed by shortfalls in U.S. and international troop numbers. CENTCOM envisioned that the CPA, with assistance from CJTF-7, would build a security infrastructure consisting of three divisions of a new Iraqi army, between 22,000 and 40,000 Iraq Civil Defense Corps troops akin to a National Guard, 75,000 provincial and national police, 50,000 facilities protection service members, and 7,000 border guards by the end of 2004. Ambitious as that timetable was, by late October 2003, DOD leaders considered increasing the overall size of the Iraqi security forces to 200,000 and accelerating the transition of the security mission to Iraqi control by September 2004. Rumsfeld acknowledged that, in order to create larger numbers of troops more quickly, CENTCOM would require some additional resources, and he agreed to commit more U.S. troops for that purpose, though it was unclear from where the additional Iraqi recruits and U.S. trainers would come. Debothification policies prevented much of Iraq's former military from participating, advising, or serving as leaders in the Iraqi security forces, and although CENTCOM proposed that the Army send teams from the training base at Fort Jackson, South Carolina to augment the contractors working for Eaton's CMAT, large numbers of qualified trainers never arrived. Another factor inhibiting the development of the Iraqi security forces, or ISF, was the lack of unity of command at all levels of security force development. At Bremer's direction, development of the new Iraqi army and the Iraqi National Police Service was exclusively in the purview of the CPA with CJTF-7 effectively cut out of the process. Fortunately for Sanchez and his operational command, Eaton, whose monumental task was recruiting, vetting, and training 27 new Iraqi army battalions in just over a year, made an effort to keep Sanchez apprised of his activities, and Sanchez, in turn, provided resources to the CMAT mission. Relations between CJTF-7 and the Civilian Police Assistance Training Team, or CPAT, however, were not so cordial. When former New York Police Commissioner Bernard Bernie Carrick arrived in midsummer 2003 to take charge of CPAT and countrywide police development, one of his first actions was to prohibit CJTF-7 and its divisions from hiring any new police until the International Police Training Center in Jordan became operational. This dismissed the fact that CJTF-7 units had already begun working with and training police recruits on their own. One of the outcomes of the dysfunction between Carrick and the coalition military units was that the Iraqi police, already suffering from corruption and questionable manning, became the most problematic of the Iraqi security services. The police forces suffered from disparate methods of training and equipping and nepotistic hiring practices, while the police rosters were filled with ghost police, who were on payroll but did not actually show up for work. In September 2003, 
CJTF-7 reported that more than 60,000 of the planned Iraqi police force of 77,000 were working, but only around 30,000 of those were actually policing. The rest of the ghost police were receiving pay, and these invisible police were only one symptom of a much larger problem. On September 16th, Bremer cautioned Abizaid and Rumsfeld that it would take at least a year to build a capable police force and advised those watching the numbers of police in briefings not to be fooled by those statistics. CENTCOM's own concerns about the Iraqi police grew along with the size of the police force. On November 18th, Abizaid's advisors concluded that, with insufficient resources to support accelerating police development, the ineffectiveness of CPAT and its director and CJTF-7's lack of logistics to support the program, quote, it is increasingly clear that the Iraqi police service is a potential point of failure in Iraq, end quote. During a Thanksgiving visit to Iraq, Abizaid spoke with a battalion executive officer whose thoughts on the matter accorded with Abizaid's misgivings about the status of the Iraqi police and tactical problems with the Iraqi security forces writ large. Quote, The Iraqi police are broken to an almost indescribable degree. For the first few weeks of joint patrols, we literally had to chase them down in the streets to get them to walk with us. I had to coerce an IP to get him to complete a foot patrol with me. The situation is slowly improving, but the police still have no radios, limited uniforms, not enough weapons, and no windows or doors in any of their police stations. We still have a long way to go before they're ready to be partners in keeping the peace. End quote. Beyond the police, the overall Iraqi security forces development mission was suffering from a lack of consistency in terms of composition, resources, and organization. The Iraqi Civil Defense Corps, or ICDC, was an initiative that originated with the 101st Airborne Division as a means of leveraging unemployed former Iraqi security personnel and tribal militias to support the scarce U.S. military footprint on the ground. As different divisions adopted the ICDC concept, CJTF-7 attempted to support the endeavor, intending for the ICDC to assist the coalition military temporarily with internal security. The ICDC was meant to eventually be disbanded, integrated into the new Iraqi army, or form the basis for an Iraqi reserve or National Guard force. Because Sanchez was blocked from overt involvement with the security force development mission, he gave little guidance about how each division should develop their ICDC battalions. As a result, unit approaches to ICDC and police development were mixed. CJTF-7 reported in December that the ICDC was, quote, widely recognized by the Iraqi people, end quote, as a capable and effective force, but in actuality, coalition units struggled to get weapons, uniforms, and vehicles for their ICDC battalions and police. Training and equipping across those forces was far from standardized. Some commanders diverted their increasingly scarce Commander's Emergency Response Program, or CERP, funds to the Iraqi security forces instead of to reconstruction projects, while others did not, leading to impressive police and ICDC training academies in a few regions that could not be duplicated across the country. Iraqi security leaders tended to give conflicting accounts of the types of equipment they needed for their forces, pistols in particular, but those requests, too, were only met for isolated units and not for the entire Iraqi forces. The training and equipping of the CJTF-7-led Iraqi security forces missions continued in a disparate fashion until the Iraqi forces generally failed in the large-scale violence that would come in spring 2004. 
The recruiting mechanisms that CJTF-7 units used for the ICDC, Iraqi police, and some of the other security services created another problem. Coalition units often recruited tribes, militias, or families wholesale into specific units or branches of service, expecting that Iraqi nationalism would naturally tie them to the national interest. Unlike the new Iraqi army, whose individual recruits came from all regions and sects of Iraq, CJTF-7 divisions recruited the ICDC, Iraqi police, facilities protection service, and border police members locally, and trained them in their native towns. This is similar to the U.S. Army National Guard, a practice based on the premise that home-based forces would have the greatest stake in the security of their local areas. The same was true for the local Iraqi police units created by the coalition divisions. Coalition officers eventually determined that many on the local police payroll were relatives of Iraqi government officials and tribal leaders who used the police pay system as a means of providing incomes to their families and tribes. Over time, the tribal militias that the coalition divisions hired came to be absorbed into the border police and facilities protection services as part of the coalition's objectives to transfer Iraq's borders and critical infrastructure to the control of the national government. When combined with CJTF-7's inability to organize security force development at the operational level, local recruiting efforts meant that a significant portion of the ICDC battalions, local police, border forces, and facilities protection services created by the divisions, though marginally capable, remained loyal to parochial rather than national interests. The Coalition's Tactical Adaptations Although there was scant synchronization of offensive operations at CJTF-7, each division gradually developed what its leaders believed were effective methods to regain the initiative against enemy forces. In Baghdad, the 30,000 soldiers under Dempsey's command sought to maintain security in a city of 5.6 million people spread across 94 military zones through aggressive traffic control points. Judging that it was not feasible for the 1st Armored Division to sustain large numbers of presence patrols or traffic control points, Dempsey decided to shift from that defensive posture to precision operations against the Fedayeen, criminals, and extremist groups like Ansar al-Islam that he believed were disrupting the division's efforts to restore security. Dempsey also had his units closely monitor the city's mosques for harbingers of future unrest. Far to the west at the Syrian border, the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment experimented with techniques to interdict foreign fighter routes coming from Syria. Establishing a wide net to block ingress and egress routes at certain hours of darkness, the cavalrymen then conducted multiple cordon and search operations within that net, using the intelligence and documents acquired in those searches to build targeting packets for the next night's operations, a technique the 82nd Airborne Division adopted in the remainder of Anbar province. The initial shortage of information about Iraqi society and locally-based resistance groups, while problematic at the operational level, did not prevent the divisions from finding innovative methods of better understanding local adversaries. Although regulations of the time prohibited personnel untrained in human intelligence from being human intelligence collectors, most divisions acknowledged that, quote, every soldier was a censor, end quote, and began to incorporate information from tactical patrols and chance engagements with Iraq's citizens into their intelligence analysis. The divisions gradually expanded the use of smaller unmanned aerial vehicles and direction-finding platforms, resulting in more accurate targeting of hostile actors. 
The 1st Armored Division, 4th Infantry Division, and the 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions each began incorporating external units and agencies working within their battle space into their operations and targeting processes. In Baghdad, Dempsey created a targeting board comprised of his own maneuver units, civil affairs, and information operations personnel, along with other agency representatives to wage an undeclared, quote, Battle of Baghdad, end quote, against former regime elements entering the city from rallying points in the Sunni Triangle. Farther north in the 4th Infantry Division sector, Odierno established a functional relationship with special operations and other national agencies to share intelligence and prepare joint operations against the high-value targets listed on CENTCOM's deck of cards. The close collaboration between the 4th Infantry Division and special operations forces allowed each to capitalize on the other's strengths. In Anbar, Swanick likewise organized weekly meetings between his commanders and the special operations forces working in the province to determine joint targets and develop operations against them. In Ninawa, in September 2003, Petraeus formed a Joint Interagency Task Force, or JIATF, to synchronize intelligence assets and de-conflict disparate conventional and unconventional operations against hostile forces in the 101st Airborne Division's area. The JIATF included representatives from CPA's governorate teams, special operations forces, and interagency officials who were working in Mosul, including the Iraq Survey Group, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the intelligence community. JIATF North's, or JIATF-N, work led to synchronized raids against a large number of targets, including some of the organizers of Muhammad Yunus al-Ahmad's Hizb al-Auda. Rarely, however, did CJTF-7 synchronize the operations of these tactical, joint, and interagency organizations with its own offensive operations or synthesize the associated tactical information and intelligence across the division battle spaces. As a result, while the tactical units could judge that they were achieving some success in their respective areas, seams along the division boundaries remained to offer opportunities for Sunni resistance organizations to organize large-scale attacks across the theater. As the 1st Armored Division would later describe in its after-action review for its 2003-2004 deployment, U.S. divisions found themselves conducting offensive and stability operations simultaneously, forcing them to adapt and integrate lethal and non-lethal effects into their targeting processes. Personnel and expertise shortages also forced division commanders to employ significant portions of their forces in non-traditional operations. In Baghdad, Dempsey found that he had to send maneuver soldiers to support civil affairs missions and make maneuver commanders responsible for distributing CERP funds for reconstruction projects. A shortage of infantry soldiers for patrolling and civil affairs soldiers for reconstruction also led the 4th Infantry Division and the 82nd Airborne Division to retrain their artillerymen and other soldiers to conduct patrols in civil affairs operations. They also decentralized military police, intelligence, and other division support units across their maneuver brigades, which became a widespread practice. Although commanders in the 4th Infantry Division maintained separate targeting processes for lethal and non-lethal operations to avoid confusion, some units began integrating the two into the same process to improve their understanding of complex environments and de-conflict the fine line between hostile and helpful behavior. In the 101st Airborne Division, an Integrated Effects Working Group merged representatives of the lethally-focused JIATF-N with experts working on governance, reconstruction, and economic development to determine the most useful ways of approaching problem areas in Nineveh and the Kurdish provinces. 
The 4th Infantry Division eventually moved to this same model and, by the end of their time in Iraq, had transitioned to a blend of operations that was 10% offensively focused and 90% focused on reconstruction. Another byproduct of the blended targeting operations was that those working at CMOCs and other civil affairs-oriented units understood how to incorporate information provided by grateful and concerned local citizens at their centers into the targeting of hostile activity, while those troops focused on offensive operations could also identify local grievances that were best resolved by non-lethal means. The result was that many units moved to a targeting model that not only identified whom to watch or capture, but also which local leaders to engage, where and what type of reconstruction projects were most needed, and how best to distribute resources across an array of missions. A common topic in these integrated targeting boards was the employment of the CERP, a tool that all the coalition divisions agreed was one of their most critical enablers in post-regime Iraq. CJTF-7 divisions all expanded the use of CERP funds beyond reconstruction projects to micro-business loans, food, salaries, and equipment for the Iraqi security forces under their control, as well as compensatory payments for the families of citizens who were wrongly detained or harmed during offensive operations. The 1st Armored Division spent a considerable amount of its CERP funds reopening national hospitals and clinics, building or renovating local government buildings, and supporting the national judiciary and legal system. The 82nd Airborne Division used CERP to refurbish mosques during Ramadan in an effort to curb anti-coalition sentiment among Anbar's population. The 101st Airborne Division used CERP to establish a Northern Iraq Office of Judicial Operations and an anti-corruption office, as well as the Eagle Village of Hope, which provided low-cost housing and job skills training to underprivileged Iraqi citizens. In Basra, Major General Graham Lamb in MNDSE was grateful to receive U.S. CERP support because the British government did not provide sufficient funds to support his reconstruction efforts. Abizade and Sanchez continued to press the CPA, which remained focused on large-scale reconstruction projects, to decentralize funding from the Iraqi ministries down to the provinces and get the additional CERP funds authorized in a new supplemental budget pushed down to the tactical level. The Sadrist Challenge Continues Although Muqtada Sadr's followers appeared more subdued after the unrest of August 2003, their resentment had simply been turned from a boil down to a simmer, and CPA's apparent endorsement of the Sadrists' main rivals, the Hakims and SCIRI, as part of the Iraqi governing council, had only widened the rift between Sadr and the coalition. The Sadrists grew further incensed when SCIRI began using its influence with the coalition to extend the reach of the Badr militia. SCIRI leader Abdul Aziz al-Hakim had lobbied CJTF-7 to use the Iraqi Civil Defense Corps as a vehicle to disband or absorb armed militias, including the Badr Corps, after Bremer declared all militias illegal. When Hakim offered that CJTF-7 could transform the Badr Corps battalions into ICDC battalions in Najaf, Bremer countered in September with a proposal to integrate Badr Corps members into the ICDC as individuals, an offer Hakim accepted. For Iraqi observers, it appeared that Hakim had the ability to influence both the Iraqi Governing Council and the coalition leadership, and that it might not be long before he could use the Badr Corps to attack Shia rivals as well as Sunni militants. 
Since the minor Sadrist uprising in Baghdad in August, Dempsey's troops had observed Sadr's men taking over administrative buildings and mosques responsible for overseeing the financial management of the holy Shia shrines. This convinced Dempsey that Sadr's activities in Sadr City, Kadimiya, Karbala, and elsewhere were, quote, less aimed at gaining political and religious influence and more at gaining financial influence, end quote, that would enable Sadr to grow his militia and expand his future power. Dempsey's concerns were realized sooner than he anticipated. Shortly after denouncing the Iraqi governing council, Sadr announced that he would work with other similarly disgruntled parties to form an alternative governing council based in Sadr City. He then strengthened his position by sending Jaish al-Mahdi militia to guard the Najaf Hauza in early October, effectively putting the Shia religious leadership under his physical control and prompting Deputy Sekdef Paul Wolfowitz to again press for military options for detaining or killing Moqtada Sadr. On October 11th, Abizaid briefed Wolfowitz that the coalition could seize Sadr within three to four days. It was a step Bremer strongly endorsed, but that Abizaid and Sanchez both opposed for the same reasons they had raised in August. The generals were ultimately successful in convincing first Wolfowitz and then Rumsfeld that cracking down on members of Sadr's militia was more effective and less disruptive than capturing Sadr himself. A few days later, troops from the 1st Armored Division joined forces with the Polish division in MNDCS to forcibly expel the Sadrists from the shrine in Karbala, after which CJTF-7 installed hand-picked replacements for the Sadrists on the council in Sadr City. After this confrontation, coalition officials observed that the Friday prayers led by the Sadrist firebrand cleric Abdul Hadi al-Duraji at the Al-Akhrar Mosque in Sadr City drew significantly fewer listeners than before the raids, from which the coalition concluded that Sadr and his Mahdi army lacked the power to counter the coalition. Dempsey and CJTF-7 judged that they had neutralized the Sadrist threat by showing the militia members that there was no sanctuary in the sacred shrines. By the end of October 2003, the British also seemed to have the situation in Basra in hand, though their relative isolation from the rest of CJTF-7 prevented them from seeing the province's connection to the greater Shia challenge. Nor did their American partners to the north keep them fully informed. Like the other multinational forces, the British initially could not access the secure internet the U.S. military used to distribute orders and reports, and CJTF-7 did not begin converting to an international network until late 2003. In the meantime, Governance Coordinator Sinut observed in November that MNDSE was not a British fiefdom isolated from the forces at work in the rest of Iraq. In his estimation, the Sadrist, quote, infection, end quote, was spreading into the British sector from MNDCS, and he was unable to convince nervous clerics in Nasiriyah to speak out against Sadr. This was among the first indicators that the Sadrists were far from contained, and, though temporarily off-balance in Najaf, Karbala, and Baghdad, were quietly extending their grasp to Iraq's largest southern population centers. Faced with shortages, increased hostility from Sunni resistance groups, terrorist attacks against the international presence, and an organizational energy drain because of supporting the understaffed CPA, CJTF-7 provided only scant operational guidance, leaving its divisions to operate independently with few linkages across their division areas of operation. Disparate approaches to operations meant that some unit areas flourished while others bore the brunt of the rising insurgency. 
Zarqawi and other insurgents took advantage of CJTF-7's lack of synchronization, exploiting unit boundaries and blind spots to organize increasingly lethal attacks against the coalition military and its partners. Far from being neutralized, as CJTF-7 believed, Sadr and his militia had sustained only temporary setbacks, employing an operational pause to regroup in support of Sadr's longer-term ambitions. As CENTCOM and coalition commanders were beginning to discover, the truly decisive operation in Iraq was not the combat phase, but the stability phase that almost no one had prepared for, and that neither senior civilian leaders nor senior U.S. commanders were prepared to allocate sufficient time or resources to complete properly. An increasingly unstable, dangerous environment began draining international support for the Iraq effort and, when combined with pressure from the Pentagon to redeploy the invasion force quickly, the ambitious timelines proposed in new campaign plans from CPA, CENTCOM, and CJTF-7 to transfer responsibility to the Iraqi government began to move from difficult to impossible. End of Chapter 8, Part 2 Muddling Through August to October 2003. Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021.